everybody. We're about to get started. I wanted to make a joint announcement to let you know about something pretty cool that I found yesterday. Um, if you go on my blog, jmsmith.org slash blog, there's, I posted a blog yesterday, there's a project that I found out about in some guys in Portland, some biblical scholars teaming up with some graphic designers and animators, and they're creating a series of videos. It's called The Bible Project. I think the website is jointhebibleproject.com because they're trying to crowdsource some of it, but they do, a, they do um, like five to 10 minute videos that give an overview of every book of the Bible, and they're animated over the voiceover. So it's like they're explaining the book and there's some animation, <clears throat> but it's really good. I mean, I'm an artist and, and kind of snobby when it comes to animation and and kind of critical about Christians attempting art because we don't always do it great, but this is excellent. It's really good. And so I'm gonna be posting, I posted the ones for Genesis. It's two videos in Genesis that spans the whole book. It breaks it down for you. It does kind of what we do in the study at a higher level. So we're at like a 10,000 foot view. The, their videos give like a 30,000 foot view of the whole book. And then they have them on different themes too. So there's one on uh, like atonement, on sacrifice, on holiness, these themes that are throughout the Old Testament. And they're excellent. I mean, they're, and they're like hand drawn and it's actually being drawn while you're watching. Really, really cool stuff. Uh, I've decided Disciple Dojo is gonna support them. I mean, can't do much, but just a little bit every month because I really believe that what they're doing is a perfect complement to the ministry here that we're doing. Only they're doing a lot cooler looking <laughs> with higher quality graphics and, and uh, our food's way better. But their, their graphics are really good. But check it out. It's it's the the videos are downloadable for free. It's all free, and you they, there's study guides that you can download as well. They make them to show in Sunday school classes, small groups, um, show your kids. But they're not kids. They're not cutesy kid stuff. They're they're well done animation. Uh, but they're they're suitable for kids. A friend of mine who's getting her PhD in Old Testament, she actually told me about it, turned me on to the link when I was asking her about commentaries for this study. And I was glad she did, because they're really, really good. So I don't plug stuff that I, that, that are un completely unrelated to this ministry very often, but this is well worth checking out. So just Google the Bible Project, they're on Facebook. Um, you can, you can they, they crowdsource their videos, they're a nonprofit. So check them out, because it's, it's really good, and I like what they're doing. And I'll be sharing the one on Exodus probably next week. I may share like one a week. And what I do is show the, their two videos, and then under it, I, I link this video here for our study. So people can actually get an overview of Exodus, and then I'll link to our very first week of Exodus way back in January, and people can work through this study that we're doing as well. So you're kind of part of teaching uh, worldwide in, in this ministry. So, that being said, how big is the lunch today, by the way? I've never had that. Yeah, barbecue, almost like brisket. I don't know, it's really, really good. You guys that are not at the study and you're watching this on the camera, this is really good today. So, uh, and remember, be sure to tip commensurate with how good and how much you appreciate the meals here because the ladies in back do an awesome job every week. Now did themselves this week. Like this chocolate lava cake stuff. Amazing. So, uh, end of book. Let's get into Exodus because we're still in chapter 32. We've got about five more weeks of this study. Uh, I, 
that I've reckoned, I, I don't look completely, and there may be a week where we they're using this room for something when the holidays come, it gets kind of, uh, space becomes a premium. So there may be a week we're not able to meet, I'm not sure, I'll let you know as soon as I do. Um, yeah. Quick question, will we be meeting yeah, yeah, we'll be because Thanksgiving's Thursday, so we'll be here on. Yeah, we'll be here. We'll meet that Tuesday. Uh, Thanksgiving we're on Monday or Tuesday. We won't meet. So we're going to be finishing up, and when we come to the, the Exodus 35, 36, 37, 38, we'll speed up because those are retellings, or they're the they're the um, consummation of the directions that God gave Moses about the tabernacle. Then they recount how the people actually. Built it. So it's this two-phase. So we may speed through some of those. Um, so just be aware of that. But it's not because we're, it's the material is not important or we're trying to just get to a certain date. It's because it's going to be a lot of, here's what Moses described, here's how the people did it. And there's a reason for that. So I don't want to skip it. We don't, we don't skip stuff just because of repetition when you're studying the Bible. It's a bad idea. But at the same time, uh, the goal is to finish out this year at the end or almost near the end of Exodus. And then the beginning of next year, we're gonna go right into Leviticus because Leviticus begins with a preposition. And he said, or and he called. Um, it, it, it picks right up. The division is not like a completely self-contained unit. Leviticus simply picks right up where Exodus 40 leads off. So we're going to go into that, and, uh, and we're going to spend some time in Leviticus. And that is a challenge for any teacher, and it's a challenge for people that Leviticus is like the graveyard of uh, Bible in a year reading plans. Everybody gets to Leviticus, and then they just stop, or they get confused, or they get bored. So we're not. I'm going to show you how awesome Leviticus is. We're going to go through it. But we're still in Exodus, and we're finishing up chapter 32. Last week, the Golden Calf Incident. Moses is on the mountain. He's getting the covenant from God. He's getting the very Ten Commandments and, and, the, and the extra, or he's already gotten the Ten Commandments. Uh, he's getting all of the extra stuff that goes along with it. But it's super important to remember the people heard the voice of God from the mountain, told them the Ten Commandments out loud. Remember, Moses didn't relay them to the people. The Ten Commandments were told directly to the people in the audible voice of God, and it scared them to death. And so that's when they sent Moses, you go get the rest of it, because this is too freaky. And they, because they're not, they've ne they never experienced that. I mean, the plagues and the, you know, the judgment out of Egypt and even the splitting of the Red Sea, those are, those are awe-inspiring, but they're sort of, not natural events, but they're events that happen in the natural world. And so they could be explained by any number of gods or any number of forces or something of magic. And we think, but hearing the direct voice of God from the top of Mount Sinai in a thundering, fiery, stormy theophany, it shook them to the core. And it was something that was, it was, it was different than they'd ever experienced before. And God gave them the commands. And then already now, three times they've said, everything that the Lord commands, we will do. They've, they've, they've accepted, they've signed the contract. And the thing that he said was, First commandment, no other gods before me. Second commandment, do not make an image to represent me or any other god and worship it and bow down to it. Those were the two. Verse two. And immediately in the golden calf incident, while Moses is on the mountain getting the rest, after they've agreed to it, after they've signed the contract, 
after they've had the blood sprinkled on them, which was a way of communicating the idea of, hey, if we break this covenant, the blood's on us. After doing all of that, they still get uh, impatient with God. And they say, we need a God that we can see. We need a God that we can approach and that we can offer sacrifices to on our terms that we can rally around. We need a God that we can raise up as a standard that will go before us. And so while they have the God of the universe on the mountain in a smoke, fire, theophany, they say, we want something that we can manipulate, that we can control, that we can relate to. So they create an idol. They create a golden calf, which would have resonances in Egypt, uh, theology, resonances in Canaanite theology. It would have been familiar. It would have been a cultural thing. Uh, that videos that I just mentioned, the Bible Project, they talked about idolatry and, and why people make God. No, it wasn't that video. Sorry, there was another sermon I was listening to um, by a guy at Wheaton College. And he was talking about explaining idolatry and idol worship. And he said, you know, sacrifices, we are uncomfortable with sacrifices, but that was part of the ancient world. You didn't explain why you did sacrifices because it was so ingrained in the culture. He says, he made a good comparison. He said, it would be like trying to explain to someone why we shoot off fireworks on the 4th of July or New Year's Eve. You just do. I mean, you just do. I live right on the border down near Carowinds where the big fireworks stores are everywhere. And they are, the whole business is based on the fact that you shoot fireworks off Fourth of July and New Year's Eve. That's why. Anybody ever ask why? What does it symbolize? What does it represent? Who knows? It's just what you do. It's it, it's fun. It's expensive. Fireworks are expensive, but people do it. They pay money for it. It has no purpose whatsoever that we can see. No tangible purpose. But it's something that culturally, it's a way we celebrate. And and Christmas trees. You know why? There's something about people in Germany bringing trees in their houses and putting candles on them or something. Who knows? But it's just become a cultural thing. It's ingrained in our culture for hundreds of years. Well, that's the mindset to put yourself in when you start thinking about idol worship and sacrifices. If you have a god and you're religious, you worship an idol. You build a temple. You put a little idol of the god in the temple. The god comes and somehow theologically indwells within that idol. And how you venerate the idol determines the God's favor what? It's just what you, it's what you do. So that's what Israel's coming out of. And God said, basically saying, no, you're not going to do this. You will not. It'd be like God saying, you, know, you, will, you will always celebrate Fourth of July and you will never use fireworks. Like, it would just be like, huh? That's, how do you even do that? And you can't barbecue. Whoa, now you're getting lit. It'd be like that, saying you can't. So I want you to just understand how it was a radical thing, and it, for us, it's not a radical thing. We aren't tempted to ancient Near East idolatry. We're tempted to 21st century idolatry, but that's a whole different animal. But for them, it was normal, and they did it. And God was extremely angry, so angry that he said in verse 9, I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, they're a stiff-necked people. Remember, that's an animal imagery where a donkey's stiff-necked and won't go where you're leading. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. God's picking up the promise to Abraham. He's going to keep his promise. That's the theme all throughout Genesis. We saw God's promise will get kept. 
He's going to keep his promise to Abraham. And that promise was, I'll make you your offspring into a great nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed. So God can keep his promise to Abraham even if he were to destroy the people of Israel. His promise could still be kept through Moses. Why? Because Moses is part of the seed of Abraham. God's ability to keep this promise is not contingent on human obedience. He doesn't need us to continue his work in the world. And Jesus even said something super fascinating in the New Testament. He said, you call yourself sons of Abraham? God could raise up sons of Abraham from these rocks. He doesn't need you to do this. And that's something that it's, it's a very balanced line we want to walk. You, God's faithful to his promises, but he can keep his promises in completely unexpected ways and still be faithful to them. And that comes up uh, in so many different aspects that, that we don't have time to get into. But just remember that. God can keep his promises in completely unexpected ways that only make sense in hindsight. They only make sense when you look back and go, oh, he totally kept his promise, and I never expected that it would look like that. But Moses is the one who objects to this. Moses could have said, awesome, let's do this. You know, these people are a pain. They're whiny. I mean, they haven't gotten really whiny yet. They're going to get really whiny in the next 40 years. But right now, they're just kind of whiny. But they're understandably whiny. They're traumatized. They're PTSD. You know, they've been through <laughs> the plagues. They've, they've been through the plagues. You can't go through the plagues and not be in some way traumatized as a people. <clears throat> But Moses sought, verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Now, now, when this conversation started, God said to Moses, go down, this is verse 7, go down because your people whom you brought out of Egypt. God enters into this discussion. It's almost like God steps down to Moses' level. And he's going to kind of argue with them. This is, again, God did it with Abraham. He does it with Moses. He does this in Scripture with people who are his friends, a close relationship. God's going to say, you know, these people that you brought out, Moses, now leave me alone so I can wipe them out. Like God needed to ask Moses to let him do anything. So by doing that, he's condescending to Moses' level and entering into a relationship, a talk, a face-to-face chat. Just like he did with Abraham before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God doesn't just arbitrarily rain down fire or throw down judgment. He doesn't do anything arbitrarily in Scripture. Even when it leaves out the details in the text that we want to see, if we understand and have read and have been following along, we hear resonances of previous things and actions and ways that God's acted before. So Moses then, in a, in, with a lot of chutzpah, as they would say, he actually gets, not gets in God's face, he's already in God's face, they're face-to-face -face talking. But Moses kind of steps up to the plate here and says, you know, these, your people that you brought, like Moses is giving God the credit, refusing to take the credit that God opened the door for him to take in their, in, in their exchange. Fascinating, fascinating exchange, this, this little section. He says... Um, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, a.k.a. Jacob, to whom you swore by your own self, 
I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. He calls him back to Genesis 15, back to the promise, the covenant that God made, and he says, who you swore by yourself. Remember maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, when we were teaching through Genesis, you don't remember, watch the video, Genesis 15, and God does that ceremony where he walks through the pieces of the animal, and I told you, by doing that, God was basically saying, I will take on myself the punishment if this covenant gets broken. Well, I wasn't making it up. Here is confirmation of it. Moses says that you swore by yourself, and then he quotes the exchange they had in Genesis 15 that he and Abraham had. You swore by yourself, God, that you would do this. So he's, he's, he's putting the promise back in God's face. He's actually responding to the challenge. And he's saying, don't do this. Your reputation, it's bigger than just Israel. Your plans for Israel are bigger than just bringing them out of slavery. They're bigger. They're worldwide. And they go all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses is, is re-emphasizing the big picture that we've been emphasizing all year when we're studying Exodus. So he calls him back to that, and then verse 14 is fascinating. I spent all, I spent just before uh, this session, just studying and looking at the Hebrew of verse 14, because it's, it's translated differently, different translations. Some older translations say, and then God repented of the evil he was threatening to do to the people. NIV says, interpretively, then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. The Hebrew text literally says, then the Lord was sorry, was grieved. Naham is the word. And it's the same word that back in Genesis chapter 6 was used when God looked at the earth, saw the evil running rampant, and it said he was sorry, he was grieved that he had created man. This is, again, another one of that strand that weaves through Scripture that just throws our theology for a loop. How can God be grieved about? How can God be sorry about something? How can He's God? Everything He does is right because it's perfect. That's the God of the Greeks. That's the God of the later philosophers. It's not the God of the Hebrew Bible. The God of the Hebrew Bible is eminently personal. He's entirely relational. And He is very much emotionally invested in His creation. Not the God of Plato, not the God of Aristotle, not the God of even folks like Thomas Aquinas and uh, Augustine and other later church interpreters who would kind of get uh, influenced by these Greco-Roman concepts of the ideal. Not the God of scholasticism in the uh, medieval period. The God of Israel is a passionately involved and emotionally invested God. And the text lets us know that through all kinds of ways of speaking about God as if he were person, or rather speaking about people as if that is part of the image that we share of God. In other words, when the God starts to feel emotion, we shouldn't say, oh, well, that's just making God be like a person. No, the fact that we feel emotions is evidence of us being in some way like God, because he is relational, he is personal. So it says, at Moses' intercession, it says that God was the 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 disaster. Some translations evil, and, and the word can mean evil in different circumstances. But if it's from God, then it, it, it has the context of, of disaster, punishment, uh, calamity. That's how the term is used in a lot of places. 
God was grieved. God was sorry over what he had threatened to do. It's almost like in this exchange, God allows himself to be won over by Moses' intercession. He allows himself, he is this very, do, let it do what it will with your theology. Read it, reread it, read it in different translations, look at the commentators, but it's, it's, a, it's one of those parts of the Bible that really throw your systematic theology for a loop, and I think it should. Because it presents us with a God who's unpredictable in many ways, who doesn't fit our ideas of how a God should act. And God has the freedom in the Bible to do that. He'll do it all. He does it a lot. So he relents. He doesn't do what he's going to plant, what he's going to do because of Moses' intercession. That's the key. Moses stood in the gap. Moses was a priest and interceded on behalf of the people. Verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, remember Joshua had been waiting a little ways down the mountain. He'd been camped there on the mountain too. You think of Moses being the only one. Joshua was up there. He was his aide. Aaron and Cora were back down the mountain with the 70 elders and the others had gone back to the people. Joshua remained behind them. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's the sound of war in the camp. Like this, this shouting, this excitement, this something. Moses replied, and this is a little poem, so it's like three lines. It's not the sound of victory. It's not the sound of defeat. It's the noise that I hear. Or the NIV says sound of singing. Maybe. Um, it's, it's just this, this noise, this sound, this something. It's something. It's not victory and it's not defeat. It, it's, what we're going to see is it's revelry. It's singing. It's, it's noise. Verse 19, when Moses approached the camp and saw the cat and the dancing, his anger burned. He threw the tablets out of his hand. See, God's anger was threatening to burn. Moses was up on the mountain. God told him what they were doing. Moses said, no, 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 no. Please don't do this. Now Moses goes down the mountain. Moses actually sees what they're doing. And now Moses' anger burns. So he is acting. He's, he's acting as a mediated version of God in this instance. He's carrying out a lessened punishment or a lessened reaction than what God had threatened fully. There's still going to be punishment. There's still going to be uh, 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 reckoning for breaking the covenant. So, uh, he saw the dancing. His anger burned. He threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. The foot of the mountain is where they all gathered Earlier, back in chapter 19, they all gathered at the foot of the mountain and said, all that the Lord commands, we will do. So in the very place where they made the agreement, Moses sees their actions, and he says, you have shattered this agreement. He knew you broke the first two commandments. All the rest don't matter. You can't break the first two and say, but we'll keep the rest. It's done. It's broken. The covenant that God had made that I've just spent 40 days on the mountain ratifying is done. He's, he is, you're, it's, the, it's the equivalent of saying, if there were no ends, of the, if there weren't more to end the story, then it would be very shocking. Basically saying, your salvation is forfeit. Your deliverance is no more. God is done with you. Shatters the covenant. That's huge. That just the, the impact, the significance of that. At this point in the narrative, it looks like everything is over. It looks like they blew it completely. No hope of, of, of restoration. 
So he said, uh, let's see, verse 20, he took the calf they had made, he burned it in fire, ground it to powder, scattered it in the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Or literally it says, and so they had to drink it. Um, in other words, it's not the image of Moses going around each person. Now you drink it, now you drink it, now you, it's a sense of he destroys the idol and got a uh, burning, grinding the powder and scattering. Are, that's a technical term for how you destroy uh, objects in the ancient areas, particularly idols. You'll see that in scripture when it talks about destroying idols. It'll be burned, ground, and scattered. So it's not just like he did it just to make a point. It's, it's, it's a, it was a, that's how you destroyed idols. That's how you purged idolatry in Israel. Is you burn, you ground, you scatter. And he throws them into the water. What water? The water they were drinking from. The water that was coming out of the rock. The water that was flowing. That was their water source. Remember, they're in the desert. So he, by him throwing the, the, the ashes into the water that's flowing, they would all have to drink it. Because there isn't any other water to drink. So that's, that's what it means by he made them drink it is he threw it in the, the spring. Taking their, taking their filth and their sin and their idolatry and throwing it into the water that was given to them by the covenant God that they had just abandoned. Basically saying, you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna ingest, you're gonna take in the fullness of your sin. And so, um, so there's a lot of like, like shame and destruction and making a point by doing it that way. It's not just throwing a tantrum. Verse 21, he said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. All this is true so far. Then they gave me the gold. Yep. I threw it into the fire and out came this cat. Big fat lies, Aaron. You, you gigantic lying high priest. That is not what happened. It specifically said Aaron used a tool and he fashioned the idol for them. So he's downplaying his guilt. Now the text doesn't tell us this until all the way in Deuteronomy. All the way in Deuteronomy we'll find out that the only reason that Aaron didn't die at this point is because Moses pleaded with God on his behalf. Moses will tell us that in Deuteronomy. He'll say specifically, the only reason that Aaron's still here is because Moses interceded. Aaron should have died by saying this. God's grace inexplicably allows him to live because he is the high priest. He is the one who, you know, he, he is the one who is, is, is going to be the mediator for the people. And so from the get-go, the first high priest cannot in any way claim to be sinless um, or not influenced by idolatry that he's surrounded by. Verse 25, Moses saw that the people, so this is after, idols been burnt, everything's been you know, done, um, thrown in the water supply, they've had to drink it, Aaron's chastised, um, things supposedly have been, at least the punishments have been meted out, but not so. Verse 25, Moses saw that the people were running wild, Peruah is the Hebrew word, it means to break loose or to, 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 to Running wild is a great translation. You know, he gets it right in this one. And that Aaron had let them get out of control. Same word, Peruah. Again, it's just they translated it two different ways to give you the feel of what this word means. They were running wild, and Aaron had let them get out of control and had become a laughing stock 
to their enemies. And that word laughing stock, this is a hapex. Hapex legomenon it means it only is one, it's a word that only appears one time in all of scripture. So we don't really know exactly what it means because we don't get to see it used in different contexts. But it comes from the root word of whisper. And so there's the possibility, some the scholars say it means that Israel is becoming like laughingstock's a little more forceful than it may mean, but kind of like people are whispering, people are talking about Israel. Now who's talking? Well, it, it's, a, it's a figure of speech. It's a way of saying that the behavior that Israel is engaging in is bringing reproach on the name of the God who just judged the most powerful nation in the world to bring his pure people out, pure spotless and holy, and then all of a sudden they've reverted back to these pagan ways. So the people have become, you know, so a, a byword or approach, a laughing stock. Ezekiel will, will nail the people with this same charge. Later in Ezekiel, God will specifically say, because of you, my name is blasphemed among the nations. Because of you. In other words, people are watching. The Exodus happens on a national, international stage. The whole book has been happening on an international stage. And it's because God's doing something in world history through the Exodus. And the people are part of it. Not just these passive, everything's happening to them, and they're just going with the flow. They are his covenant people. They've entered into this relationship. So he stood, this is verse 26, so he stood at the entrance of the camp. This is the official place of judgment, the gate of the camp. This is where you would pronounce, this is where you would take care of business. He stood at the entrance of the camp, and he said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Literally in Hebrew, whoever for Yahweh, to me. They just add some words in there to make it sound better in English. But it's this rallying cry. And all the Levites rallied him. So, so, so the scene is, the people as a whole are all camped. Some of them, they've all been punished collectively through the drinking of the water. And they've been reprimanded. And some of them are still running wild. They're still engaging in this revelry. They're still, they're still being evil idolaters. They're still being Egyptian slash Canaanite type people, reveling, running wild, running loose, uh, being evil. All the stuff that, that, that's, a, that's a reproach to the name of God. And so Moses says, all right, here, it's official. If you are for Yahweh, on this side. And so among the people who come, we don't, it doesn't say only, but the sense of the text is that regardless, the bulk of the Levites, which are Moses and Aaron's people, that's his tribe, they all come over. So he says to them, verse 27, This is what the Lord God of Israel says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 or three elephs, remember a thousand can mean thousand, or it could just mean a group of like a regiment, of the people died. Then Moses said, you've been set apart for the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Now, this is the passage that it's, it's a disturbing part, and we're running out of time, so we won't be able to get into everything. We'll pick it up next week in more detail. But the idea is not that he said, all right, grab a sword and just start whacking people. Like, that's not the case. It's the, the, the language of go back and forth through the camp is kind of like... One scholar, Doug Stewart, he says it's like, it's the equivalent of saying, go make a search, make a, make a detailed search throughout the camp of who is continuing to stay in this rebellion and who is not. And those who are, are to be put to death because those are the terms of the covenant. 
unrepentant idolatry. In other words, it implies in this, and the fact that only 3,000 or three elements of the, you know, 200,000 or so people, a small percentage were the ones who actually died. So meaning that this was a judgment, this was a purging of the leaders of the evildoers, of the idolaters, of the revelers. This was the, the ones who were unrepentant, who have not turned from their wickedness, who have not turned, who have not gained, regained their senses, the ones who are persisting in their sin is what this has in mind. So at the way the English text words it, it can be read. If you, if you want to look at something and go, oh, I can't believe God would do this, you can read it that way, and, and it may sound like that, and you see it on atheist websites and skeptic places and people that want to show how the Bible's awful and nasty and mean. But in the narrative, within the text, that's not what's happening. What's happening is he's saying, you are going to be the executors of God's covenant justice, and the punishment for rampant, unrepentant idolatry in Israel among our people is to be cut off from the people, and in this case, literally with the sword. And so it was this purging of idolatry. It'll happen again in Numbers when the people go wild again and, and their, their revelry is so out of control that one of them even goes and takes a, a, a Canaanite woman and they have sex right in the very presence of God. And a guy named Phineas, who's Aaron's grandson, I believe, is going to run in and he'll stab them both and that will stop the plague because it's this cutting out of the tumor of the cancerous idolatry in their midst. So there's all these themes, all of this stuff going on, but we're over time, so go back to work. See you next week.